science. Indeed, you are listening to Love and Science on BCFM on a Monday afternoon. I am Josh Warren. I'm joined lovingly by Andrew Glester oh. in the studio. <laughs> is that me that's doing the loving, or is that, is um, that Yes, there's very mutual loving going on here, Andrew. <laughs> oh, that's good. How have you been? Well, I've been all right, thank you. Yeah, not too bad. I've been busy doing some lecturing, uh, a bit of marking, and, well... It's really nice to be back in the studio with you. Yes, we'll swap seats. <laughs> we have, yes. I'm in a very lovely uh, blue seat here in the studio, ladies and gentlemen. I'm 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 running the desks. Oh, yeah. So if anything uh, major happens, you'll know you'll know who to blame. So far, so good. So <laughs> well, apart from losing the seat. Yeah, the seat didn't happen. Yeah, the, the, yeah, it does. <laughs> our, uh, our our wonderful love and science theme tune yeah. didn't happen, but we but we're we're glossing over that for yeah, yeah, yeah no, for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. It would be an odd show if something didn't go. Right. <laughs> Uh, yes, Absolutely, it's lovely yeah. to be sitting over here. It's it's like the old days when Malcolm was in control. Then. Oh, but to have Malcolm back! Oh yes, that would be wonderful. Back, <laughs> How are you anyway? You all right? I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. As I say, it's been a, been a couple of weeks since we've seen each other. Been a couple of weeks since we've done a live show. But yeah, I've been I've been well. I, I spent the weekend in uh, down in Exeter. Oh yeah, uh, seeing a, seeing a few friends of mine. Um, yeah, just you know, having a good time down next to going out on a night out on Saturday night. It was good. Oh, very yeah. nice, very yeah. nice. I, I uh, went to St George's Hall on Saturday evening to see my wife leading the Brandon Hill uh, uh, Orchestra. Which oh, is, that's cool. Yeah, it's yeah. very nice. Yeah, um, so a bit of a late night for me on a Saturday <laughs> night watching an orchestra. This is uh, living the dream. Um, I feel very old, and uh, but it's good, you know. I like it. It's a good thing. I, I was just interested to hear on the news though that um, the government's decided that what they're going to do is now start following expert advice, which is something that they thought we'd all had enough of. But now we've got something that's affecting our health. They're saying they're now going to follow the expert advice, ah. which is interesting. Well, that's, that's, that's nice to know that yeah, the experts are being listened to, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's interesting. And another thing that they've finally followed the experts' advice on is badgers. Did you have a look at this one? I did have a little bit of a look on it. Yeah, it's it, we are aware that uh, badgers are a carrier for bovine tuberculosis. And so in an effort to try and combat that, what's been happening previously is that uh, badgers had be being, had, have been being culled. Have been been being? I don't know what I was trying to say. There we go. <laughs> but badgers were being culled, yes. unfortunately, yes. But, uh, but we've had some news on that. Yeah, so the evidence has always been stacked against culling. And mm. that, um, what's the word? Uh, vaccinations <laughs> would be a better talky mouth noises. Yes, <laughs> vaccinations would be a better thing, uh, to, a better route to go down. All the evidence, uh, all the experts have been saying for many years to the government that they shouldn't be doing this, um, uh, killing the badgers. It was, it was supposed to say culling, but let's let's face it, it's killing mm. the badgers. And what they should be doing is vaccinating them because when they do kill them, it doesn't really have a big impact. When they do vaccinate them, it does have a, a, a big impact. So the evidence has been there for years. For some reason, they've finally come round and accepted it. 
uh, we should celebrate that. Hmm. We should celebrate that the government has finally accepted the evidence. I don't know what changed, because the evidence didn't change, but something's changed, and they finally accepted it. And uh, Catherine Hawkins uh, of the Wildlife Trust has said, we welcome the transition from culling to vaccinating badgers. Today's announcement is really good news. Uh, it's an open acknowledgement that culling badgers is not a viable long-term strategy, and it's hugely heartening to know that the large areas in which badgers have been vaccinated, most of which have been carried out by the Wildlife Trust, will be protected and potentially buffered to ensure that culling will not happen in those places. Uh, I'm delighted as well. Yeah, so, so, so does this mean this, uh, that, that culling is completely stopped now and it, we're, they, it's all moving towards vaccinations, or is, it, I, I th- is this just the start of a... It's the start of a process. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah, but uh, it's, a, it's a welcome start, and uh, hopefully it continues. I mean, the, the evidence will continue to show that vaccination is the right way to go, and that will continue. Uh, ideally, they'll continue to follow the evidence, and this new, new, uh, new voice <laughs> of the government that's saying, we follow experts <laughs> and we follow the evidence. I don't know why quite what's changed there as well, but there we are. Another uh, government that's been uh, ch- changed its stance because <laughs> of the uh, evidence is the Chinese government. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's not been lots of very nice news coming out of China recently. Um, but this, uh, yeah, another sort of wildlife-related story. Mm. Um, I, I believe you saw a little bit more about this than I did. I didn't have a chance to have a quick look at this one, but, yeah, tell us yeah, a little bit so about they, this. Yeah, um, so obviously the co- coronavirus has been uh, passed on from, we believe, as far as we know, from um, the wildlife trade in China. And in China, there's a lot of wildlife trade, and not only for pets, but for people eating wild, wild animals. And it's been called since um, called for for a sense a, a long time, since the avian, uh, avian flu way back when, for that to be completely banned. And it's taken another outbreak for them to finally realise that it does have to be banned. They've now put a complete ban on it. Unfortunately, Mm. it does have some loopholes in it, of course, because that's the way these things have to work for some reason. But it is a a welcome bit of news, at least, that the Chinese government has seen that the reason for this is this wildlife trade in trading in wildlife and wild animals for people to eat and have as pets mm-hmm. is not a good thing uh, in itself. That doesn't bother them. But the fact that it's not a good thing um, for us as a, as, as a species on planet Earth is, uh, has called them to action and they've, they've, they've stopped it. So that's good. And apparently it's a permanent ban with loopholes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this was a story that we saw. It, it, we've picked up on the New York Times here. The headline is that the uh, China's ban on wildlife trade is a big step, but has loopholes. Conservationists say, as Andrew's just described. But there's a very cute picture here of a of a pangolin. Uh, what's what's the story with the pangolin? What's what's that got to do? With? Uh, I, that's a good question. You know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know at all. No. <laughs> okay, moving swiftly. On. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, did you see this uh, a study that's been done on uh, right and left side of the brain and how we process music and how the brain processes music? Okay. Uh, which I thought, since we're love and science, and we are. Uh, a combination of science and, and music. We, and we do nothing but pedal wonderful music into your ears, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, well, a little bit of wonderful science. Well. There's been a, a study done by uh, sci- researchers at the McGill University uh, into uh, the way that our brains process music. And you're probably all aware of this idea of the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. But the left side of the brain being more dealing with the logical side of things, the 
the wording side of things and the right hand side of the brain the more creative side of things so it's it's often described as sort of um the left side of the the right side of the brain goes oh it feels looks at some clouds and goes oh it feels like it might rain whereas the left hand side of the brain sees the clouds and goes well the forecast said there was a 30 percent chance of rain and looking at that coming over the hill there i suspect it might well do so okay, that's the, the, right. the, the sides of the brain work like that and what they've found with this study um which uh we'll probably go into a little bit uh, i particularly like the bit where they uh, it says they, they use a breathy voice, a bit like Darth Vader. So that's oh, yeah, I bet you love that bit yeah, of story. Yeah. <laughs> Darth Vader blues, I think. They played them. So they, um, there's a bit of... Uh, they've been playing songs to people and found that the left side of the brain deals with the lyrics and the right side of the brain deals with the melody. The One of the ways that they've tested it is to remove the melody by making it into a breathy Darth Vader-like Okay. Voice. Yeah. And then with other things, they've they've moved the word, they've removed the words, but kept the melody. And the brain, either side of the brain, has fired up on the on the patients who've been not patients. The the, the research guinea pigs. Yes. <laughs> the research people. Yes. Um, who have been uh, the research guinea pigs? Yeah. I, do you know, I didn't, since I've had guinea pigs, I find that that whole thing very offensive. <laughs> uh, but um, I, um, it, it's it's really fascinating because. What's happening is that the left side is literally just working on the uh, more on the on the lyrics, and the right side is is working on the melody. What we don't know is how the brain then combines the two into a song. Right. So that's going to be the next piece of research that's done. In talking about some science in the news, and there's a bit of science news about black holes recently, and we do love a black hole here we do. on Love and Science. We do. And uh, there was a, a story in New Scientist, which the headline is our our galaxy's huge black hole may have created organic molecules now organic molecules of course being what life is made of and the suggestion in that headline is that the black hole at the center of our galaxy the thing that swallows everything <laughs> even the light has created helped start life in the universe yes in our, in our galaxy anyway yeah, so um, at the centre of our galaxy, and indeed all galaxies, there is a black hole in which uh, our stars and our solar systems and all the, everything orbits around uh, the black hole. Um, our particular one in the centre of the Milky Way is called Sagittarius A star. Yes. A star, yes. It's confusing, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the moment, it's um, pretty calm and uh, not particularly very special, but... Um, there has been evidence and hints that millions of years ago it may have been much more active and it would have swallowed down lots of matter and spewed out uh, high-energy radiation as a result of it. And there are some uh, scientists in China that have um, simulated how uh, that black hole might have been spewing out radiation across the universe and wanted to see how that radiation might have affected the formation of organic molecules and therefore uh, kick-started the, uh, the, the rise of, of life. And, um, and since we're such big fans of uh, organic molecules on this show, we love organic molecules yeah. on the show, uh, this, this is an interesting story. And it, they've, they've uh, seen that it's possible that the... That the black holes radiation might have uh, yeah, yeah caused organic molecules as, as to form. I understand it um 
Sorry, I've just seen a, a sign in front of me that says, you are loved and strong. I hope you feel that too, oh, Josh. It's lovely to have that in front of you <laughs> while you're presenting a live radio show. Uh, so these molecules, uh, sorry, the X-rays apparently um, blast off into space. Mm. And then when they hit... Um, uh, that's I've lost where it is. Where it is. <laughs> but when that when they hit, uh, they knock, um, particles they knock off the the protons, and then because the particles uh, the atoms and particles have uh, a missing particle of the proton, it's then looking for something to grab onto, mm. and that looking for something to grab onto can cause chemical reactions, and those early chemical reactions could well have been where. Um, life or organic molecules at least started in space which is, well, it takes life right back to early days in the formation of the, of the <laughs> galaxy doesn't it? I mean that's pretty amazing stuff um, Speaking of black holes, recently uh, in the last couple of weeks there was a piece of news about scientists finding the biggest bang since the Big Bang, the biggest explosion in space <laughs> since the Big Bang, which you would kind of think was something that might be quite easy to find. Because if it yeah, was that big, one would think so. Yeah. Well, I managed to uh, catch up with one of the scientists who had discovered the biggest explosion in space since the Big Bang. That is Melanie Johnston Hollett, uh, an Australian astrophysicist. She is known in the science communi community for having built or played a role in building uh, some of the major radio telescopes around the world, like the Low Frequency Array, known as LOFAR, uh, the Murchison Widefield Array, which she's now a director of, and the upcoming Square Kilometre Array, which is SKA. And uh, they found this amazing discovery in space, and I caught up with Melanie Johnson-Hollett and asked her just what it was that they'd found. We've discovered the most energetic uh, outburst from a supermassive black hole ever seen, so in the history of the universe. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. I saw it on the BBC, and it's reported as the biggest explosion since the Big Bang. Yeah. So it's sort of a misnomer to say that the Big Bang was an explosion in the same sense, um, but this this is in the sense that people can think about it like an ongoing volcanic eruption, but with a ridiculous amount of energy. So... We were looking at the Ophiuchus galaxy cluster, uh, which is not a very remarkable galaxy cluster, but it's, it's relatively nearby. And so what that is is a collection of galaxies orbiting around uh, the same gravitational uh, point, so they've got the same gravitational well, we say, embedded in a bunch of plasma, which is emitting uh, X-ray photons, which we can detect with an X-ray telescope. And then sitting in the very centre of all of that is a galaxy which hosts a supermassive black hole. And that supermassive black hole, as it turns out, is producing prodigious amounts of energy, which is being sent out into the universe in the form of highly relativistic particles and magnetic fields. And they were so large that they punched a hole uh, 15 times the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, in the plasma uh, of the galaxy cluster. So a huge big cavity uh, was detected in the X-ray emission, and then with radio telescopes, we could see that it was filled with with radio emission, which is indicative of these outflows. So that's what we detected, which is cool. Yeah, it's incredibly cool, right? <laughs> but this, but it, uh, just to get my try and picture it in my head, when you say it's, it's blown a hole in it, there's a cavity. Is that is that nothing? Is that literally just space? What is that? Um, well, I mean, it's 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 literally like a bubble. So what's happened is that. The supermassive black hole 
has material falling into it on an accretion disk, and once it gets past a threshold, some of that material uh, gets accelerated out. So you get accelerated particles of magnetic fields, and they erupt perpendicular to the accretion disk, and they push apart uh, the ambient medium, which is this hot X-ray emitting plasma that we find in the centre of galaxy clusters. And so what happens then is that the cavity is filled with the stuff that came out of the, well, not came out of the black hole exactly, but came from near the black hole. So it's not nothing. It's then filled with um, the electrons and magnetic fields that have, that have been emitted by the supermassive black hole or close to the supermassive black hole. So you see a bubble in the X-ray, a hole in the X-ray, and then you see it filled with radio emission from these electrons spiralling in that magnetic field, which produces radio emission. And that is 15, that bubble is 15 times the size of the Milky Way. Yes, it's 1.5 million light years in diameter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's big. I mean, that, what? How, how has this not been seen before? Ah, well... That's an interesting question. So the reason that we haven't seen it before is because we have better and better telescopes to do this type of science. So, you know, we've been doing X-ray observations of galaxy clusters since the 80s, and we've been getting better and better telescopes to do that. So it's really difficult to make a, a sharp image with an X-ray telescope because X-ray photons are very energetic, and so it's hard to focus them. And so the Chandra X-ray telescope is one of... Uh, the best telescopes that we've ever had to image galaxy clusters because it can actually make reasonably good images. And so a previous team had actually looked at this cluster and seen this cavity and not seen anything in it. They, they looked at um, the existing radio information and they said, oh, there's nothing there. And so they discounted the possibility of this being produced by an AGN, so active galactic nuclei, so black hole outburst, because they said it's going to be too energetic. This would be five times bigger than the the nearest record holder that we have, so that's too big, so it won't be that. And so so one of the reasons we haven't seen the cavities before is because we didn't have good X-ray telescopes. But the reason that we couldn't then really understand what was happening was because we've only had really good, sensitive, low-frequency radio telescopes for the last decade. So historically, we've done radio astronomy at much higher frequencies. And this radio emission is, a, is what we call an old fossilised plasma and you can't really see it at high radio frequencies. You can only see it at low frequencies. So in looking with telescopes like the Murchison Widefield Array, you can actually start to see things that we've have been invisible, literally been invisible to us before. So that's why. When it was discovered with Chandra, right, and they said it was five times bigger, so it can't be that, and then they just, what, they just said, well, it can't be that, so let's not worry about it. That doesn't make sense, right? Because there's something five times bigger than... Yeah, but they had no evidence to suggest that it had come from an, an energetic outburst because when they looked at the radio, there was nothing there. There was nothing in the in the available radio data. And so they just said, well, it can't be this. And so it was only by having new low-frequency radio telescopes that we could actually say, actually, there is radio emission there. That That cavity is full of radio emission, low-frequency radio emission. And so we saw it with the MWA. The MWA is a fairly low-resolution instrument, and so that wasn't enough to verify it. And so uh, my colleague Simona, who was the first author on the paper, she went back to archival data from another radio telescope called the Giant Meter Wave Radio Telescope, or GMRT, which is in India, and reprocessed data, which in fact other people had already looked at previously, that she reprocessed it with a better processing pipeline and confirmed that in fact it was there. So... 
um, using these two radio telescopes with improved processing pipelines, we were actually be able to, you know, find the uh, what was called the extraordinary evidence to prove this is really what it was. So the the previous X-ray team actually wrote a blog post for Chandra where they said they were very happy that uh, we'd gone back and redone this and shown that, in fact, it was from one of these outbursts that they'd discounted because, um, you know, that that made more more sense in a way, even though it makes the universe be a stranger place than we think it was previously or we thought it was previously. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I mean, if if this is five times bigger than what we expected before, does this change the way we think about supermassive black holes? Yeah, it does. I mean, this is one of the questions that we have is that how, how energetic can these things be? And what's the threshold for producing these sort of cavities that we see in, in galaxy clusters? So we know about 50 of them. Uh, and this is certainly the largest one that we've ever seen. And as I said, the one that's required uh, the most amount of, of energy to produce. And so that sort of pushes the limits of, of how these things are fed and how big they can be. And so, yeah, it answers it. Well, it, it poses a number of questions that we have yet to answer. Um, and hopefully with, again, the next generation of low frequency radio telescopes, we should be able to see more of these things. So, yeah, it's exciting. It opens up a new area to study in detail. It's a bigger supermassive black hole or it's a more energetic or is that the same thing it's more energetic whether or not it's bigger um that's un- well i don't know personally i don't know if it's bigger i don't think that it's that it's particularly special so it's more energetic and we don't understand that why are some of these things more energetic than others how does that work it's it's clearly to do with their environment and with the way that matter is fed into them but we don't understand that at the level of detail that we need to there's there's a supermassive black hole. It's so massive that it's pulling in even the light, and yet it is ejecting radio emissions out into space. Yeah, well, nothing that passes the event horizon is being ejected out into space. Uh, so it's a complicated process to do with the way that black holes are fed. So you've got this uh, disk of material which is rotating around your black hole and falling into it and feeding it. And... In that process, stuff which has not yet crossed the event horizon is being ejected perpendicular uh, to that uh, accretion disk uh, along magnetic field lines. And so you've got these electrons spiralling around the magnetic field lines. They're accelerated close to the speed of light as they depart that region close to the black hole. And then they produce radio emission as they travel out into space. So it's not that the nothing crossing into the black hole is, is being ejected. It's the stuff around it is being affected by the black hole to produce these effects. Wow. I mean, that's kind of... It makes me think of Interstellar. Yeah. yeah it's super cool. Yeah, yeah, Interstellar was very, very good. Yes. Your radio astronomy, right? So you're not particularly black holes. It's, it's radio astronomy. I'm trained as a radio astronomer. My career has been in the design and construction and operation of radio telescopes. My research interests are in magnetic fields um, and galaxy clusters in particular. So... Not the magnetic field right down near the black hole, but the magnetic field in the surrounding uh, volume of the galaxy cluster is really what I normally work on. This is scientifically fascinating, mind-blowing in terms of when you try and think about what it is in space actually there. But if it's 15 times the size of our galaxy, does that mean this galaxy cluster is 
I mean, how much bigger is this galaxy cluster than than our local group? Ah, uh, this is a, a relatively medium-sized galaxy cluster. I mean, most galaxy clusters are of the order of uh, what we call a megaparsec in in diameter. Oh, sorry, sorry, in radius. Um, and so, a megaparsec is a thousand parsecs. A parsec is three point six light years. So you're talking about you know several thousand light years across. Um, so okay. this is not particularly large or or special or or anything like that. It's just that our galaxy is quite small compared to the size of a galaxy cluster. Well, it's not particularly special apart from the fact that there's this massive hole in it. Correct, yes. I mean, that, that bit's special. And there's a black hole in the centre which is doing something incredibly energetic and weird. Um, yeah. But, I mean, if you were just sort of surveying the sky and looking at galaxy clusters, you wouldn't pick this one out and go, oh, yeah, that's, that one's weird because it's super special until you start looking at this sort of detail. For us, it's scientifically interesting but if you were in that galaxy cluster, it's uh, it's not interesting at all, is it? It's it's devastating. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to be in the path of um, this thing. Uh, so somebody asked me about this the other day, where they said, "Well, how would this affect life in the actual galaxy that hosts the supermassive black hole?" And and fortunately, um, when these jets erupt, they're actually very narrow and they get wider as they leave, and so it wouldn't affect that much uh, stuff, but obviously if you were very near to it, you'd, you'd not be having a good time. And then as they come out, they, they get larger and larger. Yeah, right. So, so if, you were rel- if you were in the galaxy cluster, but far enough away for it not to um, affect you, what would you see in the sky? You'd see nothing. Well, that, that very much depends on in what wavelength you were looking. So if you were looking in optical wavelengths, you wouldn't really see anything. You would see the other galaxies that are members of the galaxy cluster. If you were looking in radio, though, you would see two enormous jets, two enormous lobes sort of filling your, your night sky, um, which would be rather spectacular, I would think. So, yeah, depends what frequency you're looking at. You're listening to Love and Science, and we go from two massive radio bursts in space to two massive radio burks right here in the studio. I'm Andrew Glester, that's Josh Warren, and this is Love and Science on BCFM 93.2. And, Andrew, do you like aliens? I love them. (laughs) I've met a few. No, I haven't met any. No, I I think that uh, there's the... Search for extraterrestrial intelligence is one of the most interesting scientific uh, adventures that we're on, really, as a human race. Uh, obviously, we have not found anything as yet, but I think you're going to bring me some sad news. Yes, so uh, there is a um, there's a project uh, which is called the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, mm-hmm. and it's a series of projects that uh, is basically sort of searching through the background noise of the universe uh, to try and find uh, something that uh, may have come from alien life. Um, uh, called SETI, S-E-T-I, um, and it's essentially a sort of crowdfunding or crowdsourced project in which they've got uh, members of the public and all of their uh, joint computing power uh, mm. on their home computers to basically... Um, share the load of just trawling for all this data and all of this information. So just to be clear, there's two things. There's SETI, which isn't yes. changing. SETI's carrying on. Okay. And SETI at home is this side project of it where they've been using the computing power of 
people's home computers to s- help them sift through this huge amount of data. Yes, um, okay. So Jill Tartar, who was um, uh, uh, the director of SETI, uh, and one of the people that Carl Sagan based Ellie Arroway in the contact novel and uh, played by Jodie Foster in the contact film, of course, on. Um, I spoke to her at one point and she said that essentially the data that they were getting about um, radio from the universe at SETI was, was like a fire hose. And what they were able to do in terms of testing it was like putting a thimble into a fire hydrant of water and then just taking it up and going... Oh, there's nothing in there. But there's all this other data flying Right, past. okay. So I think the problem here is that they've just got so much data and they're not going to be get, get be able to get through it all. So they've got all the data that they could possibly need. Hmm. Um, and they, we, what we need to do is improve the thimbles. <laughs> you know, improve the ways that we can look at that data and find out what's in there, if anything at all. Yeah, so this is a project that's been running for 21 years, it says, and um, it appears that, unfortunately, they've sort of got as much data as they can get at the moment, and now they're just having to uh, buckle down and actually write the paper on it, but it looks <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> rather than just procrastinating. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, our thoughts go out to all the PhD people all around the world <laughs> feeling that pleasure right now. Um, I, yeah, there is some life in space in news, though, and it's life that we've grown there. Mm. Lettuce on the International Space Station. Well, let us look at this story now. (laughs) You did that. Live on the radio. Well done. (laughs) Yeah, so um, we are of course aware that uh, astronauts need to eat. That's a a tenuous segue there. (laughs) Yes, they are humans. They need to eat. Yes. But you know like the uh, the old powdered dry ice cream that you get as space food and, mm. and all these uh, wonderful, exciting things that we imagine astronauts eat. Well, it turns out that they, in fact, are trying to grow their own food on, on the ISS and, 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 and beyond. Um, and we're going to start with lettuce, by the looks of it. Yeah, they've been growing lettuce, uh, beautifully red romaine lettuce, uh, on the International Space Station, which is, is called Outrageous. Mm-hmm. which is interesting um, they've, and it's healthy they've, so they've been growing it for a while now and this time uh, it's been grown in batches between 2014 and 2016 and uh, it's been growing undisturbed for 33 to 56 days before being harvested and eaten by the astronauts or deep frozen and returned to earth for chemical and biological analysis uh, the reason being that they don't want astronauts to be sick in space mm. but it does have psychological impact as well to see life growing when you're in space as astronauts will often say that it's so lifeless out there it's so yeah it's so dark outside your window <laughs> and so just mechanical inside the international space station that to have something growing there is really good for your psyche of the astronauts so if they can grow things that they can eat as well then that that bodes well for not just the astronauts on the international space station but for longer duration space mm. flight in the future but well. this is, is it right that they're, they're growing them in these little self-contained little greenhouses as mm. a, you know they're not going out and planting them on, on the <laughs> no, no, I don't think they've got a special garden <laughs> although maybe that would be nice wouldn't it? but yeah there are little greenhouses on there 
Um, I mean, it, it does it does call to mind an awful lot of science fiction to me of uh, people growing things on on, uh, on. It always goes wrong, right? And science yeah. fiction, there's always uh, it always gets burnt up at some point during the, <laughs> during the science fiction. But hopefully that won't happen on the International Space Station. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but so. do, you, do you like lettuce generally? I don't, I don't mind lettuce. So would you say that you uh, you, you voted Romaine? <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have done, yeah. I, uh, given the evidence, I always like to go with the evidence and what the experts say. So um, I, I do. I, I think if I was in space, I do like a lentil personally. I do like a dal, and I think if I was in space, I'd try and work out how to grow lentils and make a lovely dal of, to, of an evening. I like to sit in the cupola window and look out at Earth and have a nice dal and wish I was back home. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Well, I believe we might have talked about this a few weeks ago, the uh, the impact that um, all the plans to put loads of satellites up into the atmosphere mm. might, might have mm. on uh, scientific observations and astronomical observations. And there's a study that has been uh, looking at that impact, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been kind of... What, what what is the impact? Have probably seen um, uh, SpaceX doing their satellites up into space. There's also OneWeb and Amazon are planning some as well. Constellations of satellites, literally thousands of satellites being sent up. Into yeah, space. I think it says here 26,000 satellites yeah, it could be. Yeah, oh, amazing. Uh, and that the problem is, of course, for all, all the science that's going on with that, all the uh, innovation that's going to help us here on Earth, is that for astronomers, how much impact is that going to have on their observations? and we didn't really know how much so uh, the there's been a study done uh, which has found that three percent of um, the very large telescope and the extremely large telescope studies will be moderately affected um, right but no sorry that's not true that it will be moderately affected meaning that 3% of their studies will be completely ruined during twilight, the time between uh, dawn and dusk, because these constellations of satellites are going to be quite low um, in the sky Hmm. and will only be affecting uh, our uh, observations in the twilight before dawn and dusk, rather. But the, the really worrying thing is these... Studies of the wild field studies, wide field studies rather, uh, surveys of the whole sky are going to be really damaged, and these are really important studies that tell us an awful lot about the the, the formation of the universe, how it all works, how it's yeah. all put together, and up to thirty five, up to thirty to fifty percent of their studies are going to be spoiled by these satellites, and that's really massive and really damaging for the scientific endeavour, and. Um, well, I hope that this study has some impact on, on lessening the impact of 26,000 satellites being sent up there. Yeah, that's an, that's an enormous amount of kit. Yeah. yeah. And it is. it's the issue that they're going to be blocking light. They, yeah, they produce, well, they produce their own light. Um, and they're reflecting light from the from the sun as well as they go around the Earth, and that that interrupts radio surveys, it interrupts optical uh, mm. observational surveys of, of stars as well. And I, I, from uh, from an amateur astronomer uh, point of view, if you wanted to to look up at the, at the night sky, there's an argument perhaps that seeing twenty six thousand satellites <laughs> low in the sky might be quite interesting. <laughs> 
once or twice, but if they're, they're going to be there for an awfully long time, if not forever, and it'll only probably get more and more of them unless we start to pay attention to what damage this is doing to astronomy widely, uh, more widely. Yeah. Hmm. Well, um, that's pretty much all we've got time for oh. on uh, on this uh, this week's edition of Love and Science on BCFM. Feel free to tune in next week. We would uh, love to have your company here. Uh, it just remains for me to thank Andrew for joining me here in the studio. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Science.